Good morning, church family. It's good to see all of you. And listening to all of us sing as a church family deeply ministers to my own soul. It's a great blessing. I've missed that for many, many weeks, and it's so good to hear your beautiful voices. This is just simply an appetizer of what the great, great choir in heaven will be. We're all going to be singing for the glory of Christ someday. Amen? Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we've come here to hear the word of the living God. We ask you to be with your servant and your people, that you would fill us all with your spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that we would leave this place saying it was good, very good to be in the house of the Lord. We bless you now in Christ. Amen. Have you ever thought about what happened to the 12 apostles at the end of their life? We read about the 12 apostles. We have some ideas about what happened. Some of it comes from the Bible. Some of it comes from church tradition. But let me just expound on a few of the apostles at the end of their lives. John died of extreme old age in Ephesus. That's western, modern-day Turkey. Judas Iscariot, as we know, after betraying the Lord, he hanged himself. Andrew, he died on a cross at Petrae in Achaia in a Grecian colony. James, the younger brother of the Savior, was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple, and then he was beaten to death with a club. Bartholomew was flayed alive in Armenia, which is known as modern-day Armenia. James, the elder son of Zebedee, was beheaded at Jerusalem. Thomas, the doubter, was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies. Philip was hanged against a pillar in Heropolis. Simon died on a cross, which is now modern-day Iran. But do we understand how Peter died? Peter died, he was crucified upside down on a cross during the persecution of Nero. If you read church history and understand who Nero was, he was one of the most brutal, brutal men in all of human history, especially when it came to Christians. So when we think about these first century Christians, these first century apostles to be exact, and we look at the end of their lives and we evaluate what happened to them, it was not their best life, per se. They died in a horrible, brutal way. Something had to obsess them and compel them to live in such a way and run hard after Christ to die in a horrible, brutal way fashion. And so we're in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, and I've entitled this Christian Suffering, Christian Suffering. And the main point that I want to get across today, and I know this may be confusing, so bear with me, genuine Christians will inevitably suffer in this life. Genuine Christians will inevitably suffer in this life. Well, Pastor Rolo, doesn't everybody suffer at some point in their life? The answer is yes. 
we may not all suffer at the same level emotionally or mentally or financially or physically. Some of us may, be, may have healthy bodies until the Lord calls us home. Some of us will not have healthy bodies until the Lord calls us home. So we will not all suffer at the same level all the time, but we will suffer to some degree at some point in our Christian lives. The Apostle Peter wrote this epistle in the 60s, the first century of the church, and he writes to Jewish and Gentile Christians who were being persecuted for their Christian faith. They were dispersed across the region, away from their homeland. So if you're a Jew, to be away from your homeland is doubly hurtful because you're away from your people. And in our text today, if you actually read the the verses beforehand, which Pastor Ed, I believe, preached two Sundays ago, Peter writes in verses 1 through 6 to not live like the pagan Gentiles. We're not to live like them who live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And then Pastor Corey preached last Sunday that Christians are to live their lives in a self-controlled manner, to be sober-minded, sober-minded, showing hospitality to strangers and foreigners without grumbling. Why? It's for the glory of God. That's why. It's for the glory of God that we do these things. And so now we're dealing with verses 12 through 19, dealing with Christian suffering. Suffering is real, dear friend. Suffering is real, dear Christian. And today, this morning, I'm dealing primarily with the Christian crowd, I hope and pray. But these verses, 12 through 19, is really divided into four main points, which you'll see in your bulletin. Number one, point number one, is suffering as a Christian should not be a surprise. That's verse 12. Suffering as a Christian should not be a surprise. Point number two, suffering for Christ is a blessing. That's verse 13 and 14. Point number three, the Christian response to suffering is trusting God by way of righteous living. That is verses 15 through 18. And the last point, point number four, our suffering is not accidental. Why? Because God, our God, is sovereign. That is verse 19. I'm going to spend most of my time in verses or I should say points two and three. That's where I'm going to spend the majority of the time, points two and three. So let's jump into this. And point number one, suffering as a Christian should not be a surprise. Read with me in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, it's clear that Peter, the apostle Peter, is not writing to any group of people. He's writing to Christians, his dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter has great affection and care for these Christians. These are Christians who are suffering for their faith. Remember, they're dispersed across the region. They're away from their homeland. And Peter gives them a negative command. He tells them, do not be surprised. We understand what a surprise is. A surprise is when something unexpected, something that we weren't looking for, happens to us. 
And he says, don't be surprised, not simply at trials, but what kind of trials? Fiery trials. When we think of that word fiery, that should give clear, vivid images in our mind of real pain and real suffering and real hurt. That's what these trials are described at. Trials, as we understand, is going to cause severe pain in the life of a believer. Some of it emotional, some of it physical. It could be a variety of things. But Peter says, don't think that it's strange, or we would use the term in 2023, don't think it's weird that suffering and trials and tribulations are coming into your life. Don't be surprised that you're going to suffer. Why? Because it was common in the first century. So our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died, buried, rose again around 33 A.D., right? This letter is written roughly 30 years later. It's a short period of time. And during that 30-year period of time, as the gospel starts to spread and go across the region, it was common for first-century Christians to suffer for the Christian faith. Some of them were physically beaten. Now, in the West, where we live in America, yes, has that happened, but very, very rarely does that happen. But if we could get ourselves outside of America and go travel the rest of the world, we would see that physical persecution is an everyday occurrence for Christians. We are blessed in America to have physical protection, at least so far. These Christians would not only experience physical beaten, beatings, but they would be social outcasts. They would be ostracized by their own families, by their own employers, by their own neighbors, by their own people. They would be isolated and ostracized for what they believe. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Lord. They were accused of wicked accusations. They could make up accusation. Oh, these people, they're followers of the way. They're disciples of Jesus. And they would make up lies about Christians. Oh, this dear Christian is clocking in late and he's leaving early. Whether that's true or not true, nobody would be interested in truth. They would just make all sorts of slanderous accusations. They would suffer from major insults. And so the purpose of fiery trials that we need to understand as Christians, because he's talking to Christians. When you see the word you... In this text, it's you all. It's all these Christians. And the purpose of testing is to, de is to determine what's in here. What's in the heart of this so-called Christian, this person who professes faith in Jesus Christ? What's in your heart? Testing determines the character, the reputation, maybe I should say, through extensive testing. I want to bring your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 6. It says this, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Again, Peter is writing to Christians. He understands that they've gone through a plethora of different trials and tribulations so that the tested genuineness of your faith 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Okay, tested by fire. That's language that Peter loves to use in his letter. That gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this context of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking about that God the Father has caused you Christians to be born again to a living hope that is in Jesus Christ who is resurrected from the dead. We do not serve a dead Savior. We do not serve a dead Messiah. We serve the risen Lord. He's caused you to be born again. You have a real faith. The Christian faith, by the way, is not a blind, ignorant faith. It's a real faith rooted in the historical fact that Jesus is alive. And he says, you've been born again to a living hope. Jesus is risen from the dead. But also we need to understand when it comes to trials and tribulations that come into our lives, the flesh, our own flesh and the world will say, God caused that sin. And the Bible's very clear, crystal clear in James chapter 1, that God tempts no one. God tempts no one to sin. That's James 1.13. But yet, in God's kindness to us, whether we realize it or not, that God sends or he allows trials and tribulations and persecutions to come into our lives for a reason. And many times, he does it to strengthen our faith. He allows these trials to come into our lives, and he gives the right measure. He doesn't give us too much trial. He doesn't give us too less trial. He gives you the exact amount according to the recipe of his divine grace and prerogative so that it would turn your eyes to Jesus. Amen. We need to quit thinking about trials and tribulations. Woe is me. Woe, that's true. We suffer real pain and suffering in this life, but we've got to take our eyes off of ourselves. It's to, me, it's to strengthen our faith. We understand this, do we not? That when we look at precious metal, gold, silver, or whatever the case may be, the way that you take impurities from a precious metal is you've got to light some fire to it. You've got to put some intense heat to it. You can't put the metal up here and the flame down here. You've got to put the flame and turn it up on maximum next to the metal and watch the impurities melt away. And that's what God does in trials is to separate genuine Christian faith from what? From mere profession. Do we understand that? It's to separate. There are many people running around America and around the world. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Some of that is true. But a good tree bears good fruit. And a tree grows when there's sunlight and heat. Coupled with water and fertilizer. So fire... In this sense, fiery trials is to make a distinction between mere faith and real, authentic Christian faith. 
Every trial has a godly purpose in your life and in my life. Embrace that, dear Christian. Lean into that. Accept that. That is God's way of refining you and refining me. I want to bring our attention to 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. It says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, here's a promise that we don't want to accept, will be persecuted. If you say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I've committed my life to him, and I will live for him until he calls me home, you are going to have problems in your life. Now, don't non-Christians have problems? Yes, but they have no hope, and we have hope. And therefore, we are not to live our lives as those who have no hope. Our hope is rooted in Christ. That's the great divide. That's the great distinction. That's the great difference. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Lean into that, dear Christian. Accept that. That is God's way to refine you and me. And when we think about this text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you understand what's happening, Timothy, as Paul is writing to Timothy... Paul is at the end of his life. He's about to have his head separated from his body, disconnected by a sharp blade. He's run his course. He's lived his life for Christ. And he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But when we think about the verses before that, this is what it says in verse number one. Because this is important to understand in 2 Timothy. But understand this. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The Apostle Paul is prepping the first century Christians. Hey, hard times are coming. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. What's happening? It's making a distinction between those who have genuine faith in Christ and those who make mere profession of Christ. Persecution will come. Persecution serves God's purposes for his people, for his church, for your good and my good and for his glory. So when we think about this description of how the Apostle Paul talks about the world and those who are non-Christian, does this description of wickedness and evil, is that applicable today? Yes, it is, on a global scale. 
And Paul goes on to say in verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about persecution in this way. You, however, talking about Christians, you, however, have followed my teaching. What type of teaching? Gospel teaching. My conduct. What kind of conduct? Living for Christ. My aim in life. What's his aim in life? To glorify God in Christ. My faith. What kind of faith are we talking about? Christian faith. My patience, my love, my steadfastness or endurance. My persecutions. This is the part we forget. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and in Lystra, which persecutions I endured. You want to live for Christ and have an easy life? It's not possible. Neutrality is a myth. It doesn't exist. Once you claim allegiance to Christ Jesus as your king, tough times are coming your way. It's coming. It's actually already here. It's on American land and American shores. There's no way to deny it. There's no way to avoid it. There's no way to run away from it. It's here. And so the primary reason why this world, an evil generation, an evil world, hates Christians. Have you ever thought about this? Because in our minds, we say, well, I've never done anything to my neighbor. My neighbor hates me. I've never done anything to my coworker, but yet my coworker hates me. They know I'm a Christian, but they hate me. Why do they hate me? It's because of this. John 15, 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's another promise from God's word. You may be saying, Pastor Rolo, I came here to be uplifted. I don't really feel positive right now. Hang on to your seatbelt. It's coming. But Jesus said, if they persecuted you, dear Christian, remember, they first persecuted me. The world's hatred for Christian is clear throughout Christian history, throughout human history. It's clearly documented. But if you understand the verses before this verse, in verse 18, it says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Again, Jesus says this. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates and continues to hate Jesus. Why? Because they hate anything that is good and godly. They hate anything that is holy and right. They hate any person and anyone that goes against their comfortable, sinful lifestyles. So, the reason that the world hates, first and foremost, Jesus, is because their hearts love sin. That's the simple answer. Their hearts love sin. But when we think about this verse, in verse 19, it says, But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's not simply that 
God saved you, dear Christian, and the world hates you is because God saved you in Christ and you're now part of the family of God. God owns you in me. We're talking about ownership. God is our God. And so the Lord, in his kindness, chose us out of the world. And the world hates us. So, is the persecution and suffering worth it as a Christian? That's a natural question. I think that's a legitimate question to ask. Is it worth it to suffer as a Christian? The short answer is yes. It's yes. Why? For two reasons. The primary reason is that all of our sins, those of us who are in Christ, are forgiven. Every single solitary sin, every single solitary violation of God's word that we've committed against our living God and creator has been forgiven on the cross of Jesus Christ by faith in him. There is no other blessing. There is no amount of money. There is no prestige or fame in the world that can represent or replace the blessing of being forgiven by our Creator who is holy. That is the greatest blessing ever. We are a forgiven people. We are gospel people. And the reason that we're gospel people is because we're a forgiven people. Praise the Lord. There's a secondary reason for why it's worth it, and I'll explain it in verse 13. But we are all going to suffer for Christ at some point in our lives. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes more frequent, sometimes less frequent. But we're all going to suffer to some degree if you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. But it's worth it. It's worth it, dear Christian. Let me encourage you. He is worthy. He is our God. And we are his people because of Christ. It's worth it. I know we get tired. I know we get worn out. I know we want to throw in the white flag and surrender. He is worth it, dear Christian. He's worth it. And so these fire tri fiery trials is not to be strange, is not to be uncommon. These first century Christians suffered to a great degree. And we live in a sin-cursed, fallen Genesis 3 world. So if we think biblically, we should start thinking, you know what? The world is not perfect. People are going to sin against me because I love Christ. But you're in good company, dear Christian. You're in dear, you are in good company. So let's not be surprised by it. And remember, they hated Christ first before they hated you. And Christ died on a cross for our sins. Which leads to point number two. Suffering for Christ is a blessing. Read with me in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In our text today, there are a lot of commands. There's positive commands, there's negative, negative commands. But when it comes to 
this text. If you're a non-Christian, I don't expect you to obey this text. Why? Because God has not removed the scales from your eyes. God has not changed your heart. You're still in your sin. You still love your sin. You still love yourself very well. We just read it. Lovers of self. So I can't expect you to rejoice and to honor God. But what you do need is the Lord, whether you realize it or not. You need Christ, Jesus, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. You might not make it to that time. You need him now, whether you realize it or not. So my encouragement to you, if you're not a Christian, is that you would fall upon the grace of God in Christ. That you would fall upon him and hold him and never let him go because he is your only hope in this life to be forgiven by the holy and perfect God. It's not your works. It's not your deeds. It's not your sweet family. It's not your degrees. It's not your wonderful accolades in this life and rewards and awards. You need Christ, whether you realize it or not. And the apostle Peter, he states here in this verse, he says, insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So we need to ask the question, why did Christ suffer on a cross? Or in some texts say, on a tree. And the short answer is this, for sinners. For sinners who've sinned against God and violated God's law and God's judgment was upon them. So that is the general answer. But if you want a technical answer, it's this. Christ suffered on the cross for those who repent and trust in him. That's biblical language, by the way. Christ died for those who repent and trust in him as Savior and as Lord. Think about this. Prior to our salvation, what was our destination? What was the end goal? Because the Bible's very clear that once appointed to die, then the judgment. The Bible's very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if God would have left us alone to live our lives the way we wanted to live our lives, we were destined for condemnation, judgment, and hell for all of eternity. Yet, in God's love and kindness, in his mercy, he gave us the one and only way that we could be forgiven. He gave us his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died for us. So in order for us to be forgiven, somebody has to step in our place. So to answer the question of why Christ died on the cross and suffer on the cross is so that you and I would receive this great salvation Amen. by faith, not by works, not by deeds, not by baptism, not by being a good kid, not by being a good parent. It's by faith in Christ. Think about this. Think about this. We don't like to think like this as Christians. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. But when we think about the sufferings of Christ and the trials of Christ and the persecutions of Christ, Christ was beaten physically. He was slapped multiple times. His beard was plucked from his face. A crown of thorns pressed into his head. A bleeding head. A spear in his side. His back scourged and looks like hamburger meat. Nails through his hands, nails through his feet, on a wooden cross, on a hot day. 
It was one of the worst ways to die. I would argue it is the worst way to die. For what? The Bible says he had no sin of his own. And he died for my sin and he died for your sin. Can you imagine that? And so we don't even like to think about the physical sufferings of Christ. But it goes beyond the physical sufferings of Christ. He died for sin, for the sin of his people, for you and me. I don't know. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. So he dies. This is the ultimate form of suffering. This is the ultimate form of trials, fiery trials. And yet, God in his grace, we are in the family of God. We shouldn't be in the family of God. Why should God choose you and choose me for salvation? Let's be honest. I wouldn't choose me. I know what I've done. And yet, in spite of all of that, God chose us and saved us. Praise the Lord. So, how do these first century Christians share in the sufferings of Christ? It's not because they could add to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It had nothing to do with that, but it has everything to do with identifying with Christ. The first century Christians shared in the sufferings of Christ by identifying with Christ. They're saying, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is the one who bled and died for me. I've committed my life to him. I obey him. I desire to follow him. I want him. I don't want anybody else. So first century Christians identified with Christ. Therefore, they shared in the sufferings of Christ. Their lives and their verbal professions connected. They matched up. So when we think about our personal sufferings and our personal trials and our broken hearts, and I don't want to de diminish real pain that God's people experience. I, I don't want to diminish that. But when we think about what has happened to us in our lifetime compared to what Christ has done for us, it pales in comparison. What we experience in this life is but a light momentary affliction. This too soon shall pass. It's a light momentary affliction. And yet, Peter says, as you dear Christians who are separated from your homeland, being insulted for the Christian faith, physically beaten, maybe even arrested at times. He encourages them to rejoice. That's the emphasis in that verse. You know, anytime a biblical author uses a key word like rejoice, and he uses it multiple times in a verse, the biblical author is trying to get a point across to you. You're suffering, dear Christian, rejoice! Rejoice! We have hope! We don't have the hope of the world. We have the hope of Christ. If that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. Right? That's exciting to know that we don't have to trust the ways of the world. We trust Christ and we can rejoice. 
That's the idea there. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1.24 to the church. He goes, now, after many sufferings, he says this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sakes. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul suffered greatly to minister to God's people, to minister to the church. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Can we say that? Let's be honest with ourselves. Can we say that? When we are going through great difficulty, can we say that? We're not to act. We're not to act and respond like non-Christians. We're to be joyful. We're to be glad. This world is not our home, dear Christian. We're looking to a city whose builder and maker is God, where there is no more suffering, where there is no more pain, there is no more crying. Oh, how many people we've lost over the last several years due to COVID. Our hearts have been heavy and our hearts have been broken, and we're crying, many of us, still today. But there's coming a day when our Savior is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And there's not going to be any more suffering. There's going to be no more suffering. There's no more pastoral counseling because I know my counseling's not perfect. There's no more evangelism. There's no more Bible studies because we're with our Savior. That's, that's, what, that's who we want, don't we? Don't we want the one who's bled and died for us? Don't we want the one who's left the glories of heaven for us? Yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. And so, what is Peter doing? Peter is encouraging Christians to live on another day for Christ. Live on another week for Christ. Live on another month for Christ. Live on another year for the Savior. And he motivates them. And how does he motivate them? Look at verse 13. It says this at the end of the verse. When his glory is revealed... When his glory is revealed, spoiler alert, Jesus is coming back. Amen. He is coming back. Do we see what Peter is doing? He's lifting up the hearts and eyes of broken Christian people. And he says, look to heaven. Christ is coming back. That should motivate you to live for Christ another day. He says, look. We can trust Jesus at his word. He's coming back for us. So, praise the Lord. I would say proper eschatology honors God and motivates us to live for him. Motivates us to live for him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Peter 1, verse 7, it says this, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, what? To result in praise and glory and honor. Think about this. Suffering, your suffering, is to lead to a certain point at time. And when this point in time comes, there's no more suffering. So this suffering is to result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 
Jesus Christ is coming back. And when Jesus Christ comes back, we're going to say, all glory, all praise, all honor to Christ Jesus, the King, my King, our King. That's what we're going to say. And then we're going to be in that eternal heavenly choir, brother. All right? Those of us who can't carry a tune with two buckets or two handles, we're going to sing like angels in heaven. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's coming back. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. We will see Jesus in his full array of his full glory, face to face. Jesus, our Savior, is worthy. Is he not? So when we keep our eyes on Christ, we're greatly encouraged. We're hopeful again. But when we keep our eyes on us and ourselves and our problems, we're greatly discouraged and distressed. Lift your eyes to heaven, dear Christian. Lift your eyes to Christ where he rules and reigns right now. Lift your eyes to the one who died for you. Lift your eyes to him. Verse 14 is remarkable and counterintuitive because he says this, if, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of power and of God rests upon you. So Peter says to suffering Christians, if people, the world, non-Christians speak to you in a harsh, demeaning hurtful, insulting, unjustified way and manner. Guess what? You are blessed. You are blessed. In our Christian minds, our brain wants to melt right now because it's hard to understand this. Because in our flesh, in ourselves, and the way that the world programs many, many people is this. You offend me, I'm going to offend you. You fight with fire, I'm going to fight with fire. You said some words to me, I'm going to say some words to you. That's the world's ways. I'd argue that's, those are evil ways. But God in his kindness says, when that happens to you, you are blessed. Why do we feel so hurt and so dejected? Why is because we feel as kings and queens of our own little kingdoms that we've established on earth that they're trying to wreck our little kingdoms. Because what we say goes, does it not? And when you say something that I don't like, guess what? I'm after your kingdom. I'm going to tear down the walls of your kingdom. Is that godly? Is that honoring to Christ? The Bible says no. But that gives us a good idea of why we feel the way we do, why we respond in the flesh, why we say the words we say and we do the things that we do. And Peter goes on to say, when you are insulted, you are blessed. Why? Look at the verse. Because the spirit of glory and God's spirit rests upon you. The spirit in your English versions, it should have a capital S for spirit. Does it not? And when it's a capital S, we're talking about the third person of the Holy Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is known as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. That's who he's referring to. 
And so Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit is going to remain upon you. And this idea of the Holy Spirit resting upon a person is in Isaiah 11, verse 2. Isaiah 11, verse 2. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it's talking about the stump of Jesse. Obviously, the stump of Jesse is connected to the person of Jesus Christ. But it says this in verse 2. Isaiah 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In this text, the spirit is capital S. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. And in this context, it's talking about the Davidic dynasty. The Davidic kingdom is now shattered. It's not as powerful or influential anymore. I would argue that it's basically dead unless God resurrects it. But what's happening here is this, that the Davidic dynasty is no longer these massive trees with power and influence. It is but a little tree stump. And so that the trees are cut down, which means that the Davidic dynasty is cut down. But yet, in God's kindness, he leaves a tender shoot or a tender plant. And this tender plant, if you run it through Isaiah and you look through the lens of Isaiah 52 and 53, it's talking about this tender shoot or plant is the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And that this tender shoot will rule in a greater way in a greater kingdom. So what's the idea? The idea is this. When the Holy Spirit of God comes upon a person, that person will fulfill their role and execute their responsibilities to God's glory exactly what God has called them to do. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of God is going to help God's people execute their role and responsibility. We see this with Moses. We see this with elders. We see this with Joshua and judges, that the Spirit of God, when it rests upon a person in the Bible, they will execute their role. So what does this mean of resting now that we're in 1 Peter chapter 4? What does it mean for the original audience, the persecuted Christians? This is what it means, that the Holy Spirit will empower suffering Christians to rejoice. Let's be honest. In our flesh, when our hearts are broken, do we want to rejoice? Do we want to be glad? Do we want to be hopeful, right? Many times you want to call one of the pastors and have what's called a pity party. Hey, we're, we're happy to counsel you with the word of God, not our thoughts, not our opinions, but with the word of God. But when we're experiencing broken hearts, the only way that we can rejoice in times of great difficulty is by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a number of years, how do we go from losing a loved one in death and being brokenhearted to being joyful? Not joyful that they're gone, but joyful that we have a peace that passes all understanding. We have a hope that is in Christ. We can rejoice in great difficulty. And when we do that, we are blessed. You belong to Jesus. You know that, do you? Don't you? 
You belong to Jesus. He is ours and we are his. Matthew 5 verse 11 says this. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There is a world of evil. And in this world are real people who are evil. And evil people will scheme and connive and they will fabricate lies against God's people to make sure that you don't succeed in this life or you live a life that has a broken marriage, a broken family, and a broken home. They will make up stuff about you. You know this, some of you. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are you. You're blessed. You belong to Jesus. You're living for Jesus. You're blessed when they do these things against you. So, we need to not be surprised by fiery trials, and we need to identify with Christ's suffering by what? By rejoicing. By rejoicing. Which leads to point number three. The Christian response to suffering is trusting God by way of righteous living. That's verses 15 to 18. So read with me in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter, in these verses, explains the proper response to difficulty in our Christian lives. The proper response, the biblical response. And it would behoove all of us right now to pay attention to at least this point. Because we need to apply this sooner than later as God's people. And so when it comes to suffering, there are two basic types of suffering. Two basic types of suffering. Suffering for your own personal sin meaning you've decided to violate God's law and God's word, and now you're suffering. And the second type of suffering is you're suffering for Christ and for his namesake. Do you understand that? One is suffering for your own personal sins because you've made sinful choices and decisions. And another one is I'm, a being, I'm going to be obedient to Christ. So I'm suffering for the name of Christ. And the two are not the same. So Peter commands suffering Christians to not suffer in the following four circumstances. Look at the text. A murder. What is murder? Murder is the unjustified, unlawful killing of another person. I can't walk up to Pastor Corey, pull out a gun, and press the trigger. Right? Yeah, exactly, Pastor Corey. Yeah. So... I'm sorry, brother, that I use you as an illustration. Because why? That's taking of innocent life. He never said anything to me, never did anything to me. He didn't threaten my life or my wife's life or my children's life. I just walked over there and went, boom. Right? That's murder. Unlawful, unjustified killing. That's actually a violation of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Why does God put that in his law, in the word of God, early on, in the Bible, because image bearers are precious to God. 
There's a sanctity to human life. All life. Let me say that again. All life. Did I say that? All life is precious to God. Old, young, black, white, brown, yellow, red, purple, in the womb, out of the womb. All life is precious to God. Human life is sacred to God, and we need to understand that there's a difference between self-defense and premeditated murder. There's a difference. Let me just say this real quick. The pastoral team knows a pastor in town where the neighbor said something unkind to his wife and children, and he's a pastor. He walked into his house, pulled out his 12-gauge shotgun, racked it, went to the neighbor, pressed off double-up buck, killed them. Not just one neighbor, but both neighbors. And he's a pastor. And he's in jail right now and pending his sentence. And I've tried to go visit him. And many of those who are close to him, the word is he doesn't want to repent. He believes that he's justified in his killing. He doesn't want to say sorry. He doesn't want to say, I've broken the hearts and lives of many people. In his mind, he's right. But that is premeditated murder. He won't admit his sin. So Peter says, don't suffer as a murderer. And yet there's a friend of mine who is suffering as a murderer. Thief. Thief. This is a person who steals another person's property by stealth. Doesn't matter if it's by day or by night, but they do it in a stealthy way. This is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, which is what? You shall not steal. Why shall you not steal? It's because you are to respect other people's property. Let me say that again. You are to respect other people's property. And you are to go work and not be lazy. Lazy people steal. Go work. And so you are not, God's people are not to steal. Don't suffer as a thief. Also, don't suffer as an evildoer. Some English texts put down criminal. They document criminal. This person is an evildoer or a wrongdoer. We know what criminals look like, I think. But we know definitely what criminals do. They do a lot of evil deliberately, intentionally. And this other person, a meddler, a meddler. We know this person as a busybody. We know this person as someone who loves to stick their nose in everybody's personal business. They're curious by nature. They like to ask questions in a creative but sophisticated way to exact personal information out of you so that they could share it with the next person. They love to spread rumors. They love to share gossip with those around them. They are busybodies. They are troublemakers. They're asking for a fight. That's what they're doing. And so they want to be the center of everybody's life and everybody's business. You know, there's a difference between someone coming up to you asking you for help versus a person who 
puts themselves in a situation and says, tell me, tell me, tell me, so I can share with another person. So Peter says, don't suffer in these four categories. What is Peter doing? He's saying there is a difference between suffering for Christ and suffering for your own personal sin. I know many of us on many different levels have suffered for Christ. We've shared the gospel with people and people spit in our face. We give people food and medicine and they're ungrateful. But here's the fact. They will give an account to the Lord someday. We're not to be the judge, the jury, or the executioner. We're to continue to honor Christ. But there is a difference between suffering for your own personal sin versus suffering for the sake of Christ. I know very well-educated Christians who love to get into verbal jousting or debates online or in person. They have more degrees than a thermometer. They are very smart people. And all they want to do is argue, argue, argue. What? For the sake of arguing. They're not, they don't care about bringing people to Christ. They care about winning an argument. They're jerks. That's what they are. They say, I love Jesus. And then they go to work and they become a Christian jerk, if that's even possible. And then they come to me and they say, Pastor Rolla, what should I do? Be a Christian. Quit being abnormal. Quit being difficult. Quit being a busybody. Sometimes we suffer for our own sin. We just are too blind to see it. So don't say to me, Pastor, I'm suffering for Christ, when you're actually you're just breaking God's law and God's word. And you want me to comfort you. I'm willing to comfort you, but trust me, I'm going to show you the Bible. And you've got to evaluate your heart against the word of God. The Bible never gives us a license to sin. God never gives you a license to sin. You could be saying, I'm suffering for Christ, and in your suffering, you want to go sin. The Bible never gives you a license for that. You still got to live for Christ. And he says here, when you suffer because you're following Christ, don't be ashamed. Don't be remorseful. Don't be regretful. Don't feel bad and downtrodden, downtrodden and discouraged. Don't feel like you're guilty of doing something wrong or evil. You know what? Think about this. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the right cause. Suffer for Christ. Honor Christ with your life and with your words. Don't do anything that would dishonor Christ. I just spent five weeks in a place where it's not really the best place to be. I wouldn't recommend that for even my enemy. I don't have any enemies that I'm aware of, but if I did, I wouldn't recommend that. But the fact of the matter is this. People tell me they suffer for Christ, but in reality, they're suffering for their own sin. They need an honest look in the mirror. But we need to understand that when we suffer for Christ, we're to praise God. We're to esteem Him highly, no matter where He places us. We are ambassadors of Christ, are we not? The world watches how you react to your adversity, by the way. The world watches. And they can tell by your reaction if you have genuine faith in Christ or not. Simply by the way you react. We need to remember as Christ followers that we are not to be ashamed. Listen, we live in America. 
If the worst they could say is, you are a Bible believer, a holy roller, right? You're, you're a, an extremist, you're a legalist. If that's the worst they can say, then so be it. What's so bad about that? Use that as an opportunity to share the gospel with others. But we are to glorify God in all that we do. And in verse 16, talks about it. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter says there's a time that's coming for judgment. And we got to be careful how we explain or define this word judgment in context. This is not judgment in the sense of condemnation, that you're condemned to hell for all of eternity. We're not talking about that. Remember, this is judgment in the sense of suffering as a Christian. So this is not in the sense of judgment. Peter says in verse 18, he makes this reference, right? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter is doing is he is using Old Testament scripture in wisdom literature. What's called, it's called intensification. He says, if this happens, then will not this happen? Here's the idea. The righteous and the unrighteous are accountable to God. Both are accountable to God. That's the way that he's writing. And he says there that they're going to be judged, the righteous and the unrighteous or the ungodly are going to be judged, not in condemnation, but they're going to be evaluated by their identification to Jesus Christ. Their identification to Jesus Christ. Do they actually obey Jesus as they say they believe in Jesus? Will they actually obey him? There's human responsibility here for both groups. And scarcely saved is not saying, oh, we were, sa we were saved by the skin of our teeth, barely. That's not the point. Salvation in Christ is secure. It is guaranteed. It is a fact, and it is complete. Jesus says it is done. It is finished. So this is not talking about uncertainty of salvation, but this is talking about something different. Because when we think about persecution and judgment together, those two ideas are connected. But this is what it's really saying. A lot of scholars believe this. It says this, that judgment is used in the sense of purifying God's people. Judgment is used in the sense of purifying God's people. Or strengthening the faith of God's people. It seems like both of them apply. Both of them apply. But... Listen to this. Those who refuse to identify with Christ when suffering and persecution comes prove their disobedience to the gospel of God. That's the idea. Let me say that again. Those who refuse to identify with Christ when suffering and persecution come prove their disobedience to the gospel of God. See, if you believe in the gospel of God, you really believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life, Persecution is coming. The question now becomes is how are you going to identify with Jesus in public? See, if you're not being persecuted for the Christian faith, you may say, 
Pastor Rolo, I've been a Christian for 10 years, and I've never suffered any of this trials and tribulations or persecutions that's listed in the Bible. Well, do people know that you're a Christian? Right? We have enough secret service Christians in the world. We don't need any more. Do they know you're a Christian? Do they know that you are living for Christ, that you're committed to Christ? What do they know about the gospel that comes from your own lips? Have you quenched the Holy Spirit, knowing that God is giving you a divine, in his providence, opportunity to share the gospel, but yet mums the word? You're willing to be silent and comfortable for the sake of yourself versus for the sake of Christ. Hey, I'm not simply preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. We all fall under that. But really, when we think about this, how are we going to live out our salvation? That's what it comes down to. Verse 17 and 18 is, how are you going to identify with Christ, and how are you going to live out your salvation? Are you going to speak about Christ or not? Are you going to live for Christ, or are you not? Because in, when, it, when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about salvation in three key areas. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is a legal declaration from God that you're forgiven. Sanctification, part two, is now that you are forgiven, how are you going to live for Christ? That's what we're in right now. And the third and final part is glorification. At the end of our lives, God will call us home. But how do we get from sanctification to glorification when we receive our new bodies? When God unites soul and body together. How do we get to glorification? This is how we get there. Through much suffering and pain. Through much trials and tribulations. Through much persecution. That's how we get there. But the Lord will help us. The Lord has promised to be with us. Which leads to point four, and I'll make this quick. Our suffering is not accidental because God is sovereign. Verse 19. Read with me. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The Christian who suffers for the sake of Christ Jesus suffer according to God's will. God has prescribed the right amount of persecution and suffering to the right amount at the right time for your life. And he does it for the glory of his name. And he does it for your good, so that you would be conformed to the image of God. And it's not an accident. It's all according to God's sovereign plan. And so those who say, you need to speak things into existence. You need to have a comfortable life. Well, tell the people who are in ICU wards right now in the hospital. Tell people who are homeless and hungry and suffering right now. See, the only hope that we can give to people is the hope of Christ. So, it says here, according to God's will, God the Father is purifying and strengthening you through fiery trials. I want to bring Romans 8.28 to your attention. And we know, who's the we? Christians. And we know that those, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love who are called according to his purpose. I find this verse amazing. Why? Because many Christians misquote this verse. 
They use it in a way to defend their sinful situation. Pastor Rolo, you know, my daughter is living in sexual sin. Oh, Pastor Rolo, my son is living in sexual sin. But it's okay. It's okay. God is going to work it for their good. What they've done is they've taken verse 20 and they ripped it out of context and they fix it up and fancy it up and doctor it up to fit their financial or personal needs. That's exactly what many Christians do. So I find it amazing that they use this verse as a license to sin. But if we read it in context, this is a verse and a promise from God's word to us. It is for those who love God. Well, who loves God? Do non-Christians love God? No, non-Christians love themselves, lovers of self, remember? But those who are in Christ, those who've turned from their sin and trust in Christ, they love God. It's for those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Those who go from death and darkness to light and life. They're forgiven. Who are these people? They're Christians. So we need to be honest with this text and we need to be honest with this verse. It says, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love God. It's a very specific group of people for those who love God. Do we think that cancer is good to suffer the physical pain of cancer? No, that is not good. In my warped pea brain, that is not good. But I am not God, so bear with me here. Is it good that we lose our job, our house, and we have to live on the streets? That is not good. Is it terrible to lose our family members? It's not good. But yet, God uses difficulty in your life, in my life, that we consider not good. God considers it as good for his glory and for your good, in spite that all things are not good. So we need to quit taking God off the throne and bringing him down and lifting ourselves up and putting us on his throne and us judging God. God, why did you allow this to happen? God, how dare you? Who's God at that point? You need to repent. You need to quit judging God. You have no authority, no right to do that. But God allows these challenges ultimately for our good and for his glory. So how should we respond during times of difficulty? How should you respond? Because if you're not in a trial and tribulation right now, if you're not suffering persecution, if you're not experiencing that right here, right now, just wait a little bit. It's coming. And so when it comes upon you, you need to understand, what do I do to honor Christ? And it's this. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Entrust your souls to the faithful creator. We're talking about God the Father. You're committing your soul, your life, into the hands of the sovereign one. You're saying, my hands are off. I'm in your hands, O Lord. I'm going to do everything I can to obey your word. But at the end of the day, you are God and God alone and I am not. And I will gladly accept whether good comes from your hand or bad comes from your hand. I'm a mere mortal. 
filled with sin. And you are the holy, perfect one. And you know what's good for me every day of my life. Whether I see it or not. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12 says this. Which is why I suffer as I do. This is the Apostle Paul. Why does he suffer? He's saying because I am sharing the gospel. I love Jesus. I'm telling people about Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus. And this is what he says. Which is why I suffer as I do. But listen to this. But I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He knows who he believes. He knows what he believes. Paul suffers for the sake of the gospel. And he doesn't judge God. I receive good from your hand and I receive bad from your hand. Who am I, O Lord? I'm simply your servant. Do not let your circumstances dictate how you respond. You can't control what other people say and do to you. But you can control by God's grace, by his spirit, how you respond with your words and with your actions to others. Remember, we are ambassadors of Christ in private and definitely in public. Remember that, dear Christian. We are people of the book. As I close here, in ancient Rome, there would be thousands and thousands of people who would congregate at the Roman Colosseum. And in the Roman Colosseum, if you know anything about the Roman Colosseum, that they would bring Christians into the center of the Roman Colosseum. And the thousands and thousands of people would watch Christians have their head and their bodies disconnected by a vicious, voracious animal. They would see body parts separated from their body. And they would look at that as entertainment and good. And so there was this man by the Paul, by the name of Paul Ratter. He went to go visit this Roman Colosseum recently. And as he's standing in this famous landmark, he says this, quote, I stood uncovered to the heavens above where he sits for whom they gladly died and asked myself, would I, could I die for him tonight to get this gospel to the ends of the earth? And Raider says this in his prayer. I prayed most fervently in that Roman arena for the spirit of a martyr and for the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart as he worked in Paul's heart when he brought him on his handcuffed way to Rome. These early Christians lived on the threshold of heaven within a heartbeat of home, no possessions to hold them back. I want to encourage you, dear Christian, you are simply a heartbeat from eternity. You are one breath away from stepping into eternity. We live on the threshold of heaven daily. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. But we are on the threshold of eternity. We don't need to travel to a third world country to realize the brevity of life. Life is short and life is precious. What matters for Christ is of utmost importance. Oh, I wish I could. I wish we could live without earthly possessions. I'm afraid that earthly possessions keep us from doing the greatest good in this life.
for the sake of Christ. Sometimes I wish we all could live in a box in another part of the world on dirt floors with no earthly possessions and all we have is Christ. All we have is Jesus. I wish earthly possessions wouldn't hold us back. So, as we summarize and land this plane, suffering as a Christian should not come as a surprise. And suffering for Christ is a blessing whether we realize it or not. We need to train ourselves to realize that. The Christian response to suffering is trusting God by way of righteous living. Don't use your Christianity as a license in your suffering to sin. And our suffering is not accidental because God is sovereign. Sermon in a sentence, when we suffer for Christ, we rejoice and do good knowing that our suffering conforms us into the image of Jesus by God's sovereign design. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word to us. And Lord, help us not to simply be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We're grateful for the great salvation that we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, by your mercy and grace to us. And Lord, we admit that when we suffer, we complain. Lord, forgive us of that. Help us, Lord, in our times of difficulties, trials, and tribulations, and persecution to respond in a way that's glorifying and honoring to you because you are worthy. And all of God's people said, amen.